So this week on the Egg Gap Evolution podcast, we are switching things up. I'm getting, well, not even a little bit more, a whole lot more personable about my personal story in relation to education as growing up as a black child in Baltimore City, I'm being raised actually in Woodlawn, Maryland, which is a suburb of Baltimore City. And a lot of the racism that my family and other um, black and brown students in the area encountered when it came to education and how all of those experiences um, came together, kind of come together um, to motivate me and to um, give me a reason to create this podcast, Um, among other things that we're going to talk about, just so that you all have a solid understanding of why this podcast exists. So yes, I'm dedicating this episode of the Egg Gap Revolution podcast to laying it all out on the table for those of you who crave a deeper understanding of why me, a lady with absolutely no children, would dedicate her time and energy to producing a podcast that brings together all of the many ways that parents, educators, and innovators can help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook and close America's gaping and absolutely dangerous education gap together. But before we jump into the next few minutes of this episode, we've got to clear the air because, um, well, before I do that, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that every week I interview a a person, they could be a teacher, they could be a parent, they could be someone who started a company that um, helps or serves K through 12 children in the field of innovative education. And we'll get into all of the different unique and quirky things um, that folks are doing to help us meet the future now and to help children explore the vastness of education. We'll get into that in just a moment. But I wanted to clear the air about um, the education gap in America, period. Because when most people hear the words education gap or achievement gap, they think about the textbook definition. And the textbook definition of the education gap or achievement gap is this. Achievement gaps occur when one group of students Um, Maybe the group is grouped together. Those groups are separated or grouped together by race and ethnicity or gender. But when one group of students outperforms another group and the difference in average scores, so maybe test scores or benchmark scores for the two groups is statistically significant. Um, So when we talk about something that is statistically significant, it means that um, the, the difference, like the, um, the lower percentage or the higher percentage, whatever that number or portion is in the middle, is um, so significant or so um, large that we can't help but to notice that there is a difference or a disparity, which means that whatever those opposite numbers or percentages are for the separate groups, um, that means there's more to investigate there. Why is that? Why is that the case? Why is that happening? There's something going on here, and we need to figure out what it is. And st- statistical significance uh, doesn't only apply to education. It is a way of um, looking at statistics and data, no matter what topic we're talking about. But in this particular context, we're talking about the education gap in America. So in a nutshell, the education um, or achievement gap in education refers to the disparity in academic performance between groups of students. And in America, these groups of students are usually categorized by race. Um, So the most common example of what causes the achievement gap in America is linked to generational poverty for Black and African American and Latinx students. Yes, there is generational poverty in some white communities as well. 
But in the context of America um, and the education gap in America, the large portion of students suffering or whose lives are taking a toll because of this disparity are children of color. So when we're talking about disparities in education and um, you know the generational poverty that often leads to that, here's an example that we can look to. So for example, if we're trying to see what that looks like in quote unquote real life or in real time or in the, in the context of someone's life, a student's life, imagine a student whose parents have to work two to three jobs just to keep food on the table and a roof over the child's head um, they may have to work harder. They, you know, they may have a harder time finding time to expose their children to out-of-the-classroom learning experiences and activities. Naturally, that would be the case, right? Because they might be working from, you know, a shift from 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then maybe another shift from 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. Um, and so, if you know, going back to the essential workers that we all saw do so much work, especially those in jobs like stocking, you know, stocking shelves and, and manufacturing and jobs like that, that some people just might not be privy to the demands and the hourly demands of those sorts of jobs um, it, that also have very low pay. Those are the sorts of things that we're talking about. And so you can imagine that a child growing up in a home like that might not have uh, as many resources and the parent might not have as much time to dedicate to their child's education as someone who um, you know, as a student whose parents are financially stable or even wealthy with maybe more time and resources to provide their child with enriching experiences. So, yeah, that sort of scenario is what pops up in most people's minds when they think about the achievement gap. Um, and, you know, that's a common that's that's real. That's what's actually happening in a lot of people's lives. And that is the, you know, this versus that, that often, if not almost always leads to the achievement gap that we're talking about or the education gap we're talking about. Um, and that's very true. You know, this this uh, scenario is not wrong. You know, that is the textbook version of the education gap, and that is very important, and that is what our mission is grounded in, is, is finding a way to transform that. However, in the words of those annoying as seen on TV commercials that we all know and hate, <laughs> but wait, there's more. Um, America's youth is collectively at risk. So when we talk about the education gap, we should also um, remember to include youth from all racial and economic backgrounds, not because youth from all backgrounds or families um, are suffering economically, but this is, this, this is the reason why we have to uh, think about youth from every single economic background and racial background. Um, there are a few reasons. And I want to start with the least likely type of kid to come to mind when we think of the word disparity or achievement gap or education gap. And that's white kids or Caucasian kids, whichever you prefer to say. Specifically, those who come from homes with parents um, who have means or who have wealth. And those parents absolutely can and do provide those children with out-of-the-classroom learning experiences. So with experiences that, um, you know, they're not just in a classroom sitting at a desk and learning from a teacher or on a laptop and doing their um, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they're also having experiences. Maybe they went on a trip or maybe they went to a museum or maybe they're taking a cooking class or maybe they're doing so many different um, uh, out-of-the-box and hands-on things or just having rich life experiences 
that give them diverse perspectives on how they can conduct themselves throughout the world. Now, while this may be true and while these children may have um, and largely do have access to these sorts of resources, um, and while I have boatloads <laughs> to say about the way that generational wealth has been and is accumulated by different racial groups in America, it's important to remember that if we simply chalk up a wealthy white child to having everything that they need to be a great citizen of the world, um, you know, if we simply chalk it up to they're wealthy so that so they're they're good, they're fine, then boy oh boy, no wonder America is in crisis. Because the reality is, even children who are considered children of privilege cannot contribute to a generation that is better for the world than the generation before them if they are encouraged to believe that they are well-rounded, even if all of their day-to-day -day experiences are incubated in communities and opportunities that are white-run, white-led, and white-influenced. And so here on the Egg Gap Evolution podcast, we encourage listeners to hear uncut, diverse perspectives on how to make a child's childhood the launch pad for exceeding greatness lifelong. The only way to ensure that kids whom society labels privilege can truly consider the dangerous and discriminatory mindset that plagues America is to make sure that more diverse learning opportunities and spaces are not only normalized, not only kept open, you know, and running and operating, but to make sure that these spaces and places, um, these opportunities are shared and this advice from um diverse audiences and people of color is shared um, and produced by more people of color. Um, so a child cannot truly be a well-rounded child if all of their experiences in life are incubated uh, within the same community with the same group of people. And that's just fact. I don't care how much money you have. If you are not getting diverse perspectives, if you are not at some point immersed in someone else's culture and made to be the one who has no clue what's really going on here, <laughs> then you cannot be a well-rounded person because you're only thinking of life from your own perspective, from your perspective. And so when, when, um, so on the Ed Gap Evolution podcast, we seek to close America's education gap. Yes, beyond the textbook, but even beyond the textbook definition of what an education gap is. Um, because here we amplify diverse voices of people who have created educational solutions rooted in their real experiences as people of color in America from a perspective of authenticity and from a perspective of joy and from a futuristic perspective. Um, we make it easier for people from all walks of life to get a hold of those solutions. Whether the solution be advice from a school teacher to parents, um, whether it be broadcasting or putting on display a CEO who is building a company that's making more spaces for the essence of black and brown culture to exist freely in an excellent learning environment, or even a vegan herbalist mom who we're going to um, interview in an upcoming episode who teaches children and families how to heal themselves through everyday food and drink. All of those things are education. All of those things are important. And some of them don't happen in the classroom. So here on the podcast, we place zero boundaries on the opportunities that children can and need to be exposed to. We talk about um, so many different things. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast yet or you haven't had a chance to listen to 
all the episodes or one of the episodes. Here are just some of the things that we talk about on the podcast. Most recently, we talked about documentary filmmaking and storytelling for teens um, with an organization called Docs in Progress that literally sends (laughs) kids between the ages of 13 and 17. Um, They give them filmmaking equipment so that they can make their own documentaries over the summer and they teach them how to make a documentary. How cool is that? Um, We talk about yoga in schools and we learned about yoga in schools and the benefit of yoga for children from people like Emily Fleming in the very first episode, episode one, um, and her company, Emily Fleming Yoga, that hosts, you know, that she's written a curriculum to support children and teachers and staff doing yoga in schools. We've had a marvelous school teacher, Susana Reyes, open up about managing bipolar one disorder as a kindergarten teacher in Baltimore City and a loving mom. Um, We also crossed the border to Canada, to Toronto, Canada, to speak with the author of a new children's book. Um, The book's called Kids of Cannabis, and the author's name is Brian Sikandi, and his story is rich. I mean, his family fled Uganda during the Ugandan Civil War when he was a kid, and he grew up in Canada, where he first encountered hemp as a teen. And now he advocates for teaching children about cannabis, the plant, you know, the cannabis plant, beyond recreational use, so that we can spark more innovation throughout North America and the world. Because cannabis can make cars, guys. It can make paper. It makes rope. The list goes on and on. And so now let's talk about education beyond the textbook for black and brown children. We've talked about why I, on this podcast, I've chosen not to exclude um, the the importance of including, quote-unquote, privileged children in the education gap because monetary wealth is very important when it comes to surviving in this society, but it is absolutely not the only type of wealth that there is out here. And so now we're going to, um, and we need everybody, we need all children to understand what it is to be a well rounded human being in order for any children to be able to build a magnificent future that, you know, they have the power to envision for themselves to make this world truly a better place. Let's talk about the education gap beyond the textbook for black and brown children. Um, And so let me start by saying um, that black children are brown too. (laughs) When we say black and brown children, please do not think that I'm saying, you know, a lot of people say black and brown as if we're not all brown. So I'm talking to black and brown children. Um, But in the context of this episode and in America, we cannot ignore the fact that black children are born into and come up against a more vicious slew of obstacles in their pursuit to achieving their goals. Um, So when I make a point to separate black children from that group of what I'm saying, when I'm saying black and brown children, it is because the experience as a black child in America is different from the experience of any other child in America. And that goes, you know, the same as for any other child in America, that every kid's experience is different. But we're not going to turn a blind eye to the fact that black children have um, much more to overcome, much more to encounter in order to step into and achieve um, the, the fullness of greatness that black children are capable of, um, period. And so the best way for, uh, in my opinion, for me to get this point across is to talk about my very own story. Um, Born in Baltimore, Maryland, raised in Woodlawn, Maryland. And Woodlawn is a suburb of Baltimore right outside of the city of Baltimore. 
And in the early 90s, um, when I was a child, an elementary uh, age school child, <laughs> many black families who lived in the city of Baltimore were encouraged to move to the county as new single family homes and properties were being developed. Um, in large part, it was a part of gentrification. Um, but for a lot of black families, it was really seen as an opportunity to move out of the city to have kind of like a fresh start, finally have some land, finally have some ownership over things. And it it was and that is a beautiful thing. Um, and before we continue this part of the story, I'll provide even more context here for those of you. Um, you may not be familiar with Baltimore. And so I want you to just get an understanding of the type of city and area that we're talking about before I continue this snippet of my um, childhood story. So Baltimore, um, it's a United States East Coast city located in the state of Maryland. And the population is, I think, 63 or 64 or more percent black. So somewhere in the mid 60s um, percentage African-American black population. And the black community remains the most economically unstable community in the region, you know, in Maryland in the DMV period, um, although there is a high concentration and population of black people in this region. And so now before we move on, I don't want you, anyone to make the mistake that by me saying that, uh, you know, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that I'm saying that all black people in Baltimore or all black people in the DMV are poor and living paycheck to paycheck. That is absolutely not the case whatsoever. There are many financially sound and even wealthy black people in Maryland and around the world, but certainly not enough. Um, and when, let's get back to the story. So when you hear new single family home properties being developed, one might be inclined to think, oh, yay, you know, better opportunities, better education, better, better, better. Um, well, my response to that is, uh-uh. <laughs> You've got it all wrong. That is not always the case, and it certainly was not the case um, in this situation. So back then, my mom, um, dad, my three siblings, and I lived in a single-family home, and we were zoned for a Title I school called Featherbed Lane Elementary School located in Woodlawn, Maryland. Um, I grabbed the definition of a Title I school for you, um, for you, the listeners, off of a website, it's called like debtrelief.com or studentdebtrelief.com from their blog. And here's the definition. Title I, you know, if, if a school receives Title I funding, um, it's when an elementary school or a secondary education school gets subsidized funding in an effort to raise the academic achievement for all of the students in that school. So it's a school-wide program, a school-wide funding program available to schools um, and in different states, I, I would assume around the country, but I know specifically in Maryland, where at least 40% of the students come from low-income families. Like that is the, that, that's the qual uh, qualification or the statistic or the data set that has to be there. You know, 40% of the students in the school have to come from low-income families. And then the school can receive this subsidized funding called, uh, you know, a Title One. And um, yeah, so my dad was a major in the police department, and my mom was a teacher. We didn't qualify for any of the discounted lunches or other Title One offerings that other students in the school received, and we also couldn't afford private school. Um, and so you may be thinking, well, why would you need to afford private school when you have a school right here? 
You may also be thinking, well, do you think you're better than the kids who needed subsidized luncheon, uh, subsidized lunch and such, you know, that the, the Title I grant was making available to other children? And my response to you was this. Um, no, <laughs> but you're missing the point here. That's how you're thinking. The point is that regardless of the family, you know, our, our family's income or any family's income, there were so many different income levels in that school. I can't even begin to divvy it up. You know, some people, it was, it's really based on um, how zoning lines are drawn when it comes to what, what school a child can go to, which we'll get into a little bit later. And so zoning lines are very much racially charged, as you'll see a little bit later on in our story, because however a district decides to draw the lines is really saying, hey, if you live in this neighborhood and you're within this uh, parameter that we've drawn, you know, you can go to this particular school. And if you're not, you go to that particular school. And it's really a way just to, to divide up, to divide, uh, to divide communities up and to keep people in groups in, in whatever area that district or the majority um, or stronger opinion or force in that area wants people to be divided up. So that's a, a problem for many reasons, um, but you'll see later on in this story why it's a huge problem and, and why I needed to bring up the fact that not every student in this Title I school came from necessarily a low-income family that needed subsidized lunches and such. Um, so in that school, Featherbed Lane Elementary, the school hadn't been updated or renovated for 60 plus years. I'm talking like for the longest time, I thought it was totally normal <laughs> for a school to look like it was from 1932. Like that's how much the school had not been updated. Like the bathrooms were just, I don't care how much you clean them, they still smelled like they were from 1912. Um, our textbooks were withered. They were practically ripped to shreds. We had some library books, you know, every now and then we get a new influx, but nothing to phone home about. Um, and the books were so old or they were just non-existent. You know, we didn't always get the newest or at least close to the newest version of the textbook that we needed in order to be considered keeping up with what our, you know, as students at whatever grade level we should have been getting at that time. Um, and so there was one way in and one way out of the school, you know, one, one entrance, the same entrance was the exit. You know, there was a bus loop and the same way buses could get in and cars could get in was the same way buses and cars had to get out, um, which poses a terrible fire hazard. So not only now are we talking about students not having the resources, academic resources, now we're talking about safety issues. You know, we're talking about the district that our students lived in saying, hey, I don't care if you live or die. You know, that's essentially what you're saying when you're when you're not making sure that a school is up to um, is up to standards when it comes to, um, I guess, you know, I don't know exactly what it's called, but whatever you need to do to make sure if there's a fire, everybody can get out. Um, and so, I mean, can you imagine hundreds of students and teachers all rushing away from the from a fire? Um, on the same path that the firefighters and trucks are trying to rush in and stop the fire. I don't even want, you know, our minds to go there, but that's exactly what was going on in this school. Um, we never had a fire, thank God, but this was the setup. Um, and so not only that, when our school's population grew too big to hold us students, because at a certain point, you know, it was just this rapid influx of 
Um, these developers in the suburbs, you know, Baltimore County, were just lowering these mortgage rates to help get more black people out of the city and open up areas for gentrification. So the mortgage rates were just crazy low. I mean, people were getting like decent sized houses for like a $500 mortgage, which I don't know where you live, but in the state of Maryland, a $500 mortgage is like, hey, this is wonderful. Um, and so it was a benefit for community, for, you know, black and brown families who wanted to get out of the city, weren't really thinking about, you know, the cities being gentrified. It's like, I want to start over. I want to get away from this mess. So I just want to see something new. I'd like to have a patch of grass or some ownership. Um, and so, um, the population for the school, you know, our school's population at the elementary school just grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was absolutely no room to hold students at a certain point. I mean, it got so bad that uh, I was talking to my kindergarten teacher recently. We're, we're still in touch. We still have a good relationship. And um, she was telling me how, you know, they would try and keep it from the kids, but they were teaching music classes in broom closets. You know, they were teaching. Um, we were learning in trailers. My third through fifth grade education um, at the times that I wasn't in homeschool, my third through fifth grade education was in a trailer that they dressed up to make look like a classroom. So we're talking kids in broom clods, it's learning, you know, trailers learning, just a total mess. This is not the sort of environment that any kid should have to try and learn in, especially when there's plenty of funding that can be redirected and allocated to make this, to you know, to make sure that this is not the case. Um, and so... Yeah, our school grew in population and the, the big issue was, you know, the big, hairy, awful thing in the room when anyone talked about this issue is that the majority white school right up the street had plenty of space to hold plenty more students. Um, and when I say up the street, I mean maybe less than a 10 minute drive. Um, and so the town specifically, um, which was the, so it was Woodlawn that was majority black or African-American. And then there's Catonsville, who's, which is a majority white town, even to this day. And so um, no parents, the parents, the administrators, um, you know, the folks in the in Catonsville community, they just acted a plum fool when, it, you know, the districts and the PTA proposed redrawing zoning lines so that more brown children could benefit from the resources that, uh, you know, could come to that school. And free up some room in this, you know, imploding public school, you know, subsidized funding public school. Hey, let's redraw the line so that we can get some of these children out of this overcrowded school and get them into a school that has room to receive more children and also great resources. And the, the crowd went wild. I mean, they had protests. They made cupcakes with the N-word on it so that when people went to, you know, go and view the school, they would be scared off and turned away. Um, just acted, it was, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. And we're talking about the, you know, early, mid and late nineties. We're not talking about 1914, you know, or 1857. This wasn't too long ago. Um, and so, so yeah, so the, uh, they acted a fool when the districts were proposed redrawing zoning lines and when parents advocated for more brown students to benefit from resources at a great public school. And what many fail to realize is that getting approved to go to a majority white school as a black student has really nothing to do with race for us families who pushed for it. 
I'm not, you know, we weren't under, we weren't dying to go to a school with white kids. We were kids. We didn't really even think like that. Our parents didn't care about the color of the people who were at the school. That was an afterthought, but it did have everything to do with the funding and resource allocation that that public school got that was right up the street versus what the school that we had and were zoned to received. And so that public school had state-of-the-art facilities. Like I said, they had brand new books, they had festivals, they had special guests, everything you could possibly want in your child's school, especially in a public school. And so that public school provided children with opportunities for achievement. And that is what the parents wanted. That is what all parents, you know, um, want for their children, opportunities for achievement. Um, and so in my case, my family sacrificed financial stability to be, uh, so that my mom could stay at home and homeschool us because uh, there was just, you know, there was, there was little hope for your future if you stayed in the school system that we were zoned for from K through 12. It was just, I mean, I, I could go on for days about the stories. Um, but thankfully, you know, she was, she sacrificed her income. Um, it was a struggle, you know, but we were able to learn through my mother's teaching. It was a struggle financially, but we had a wealth, a wealth, very wealthy experience, a rich experience as homeschool children, um, through her teaching, through hands-on play and all sorts of out of the box experiences that 99% of the children, um, that, and my friends that I had to separate from when we, when we were taken out of public school, they never got or they never received. You know, not everyone's parents could afford to make that sacrifice to leave their job. Shoot, we could hardly afford it. Um, and, you know, when I say a struggle, I'm talking hand-me-down clothes. Like, I'm talking, um, you know, hey, are, you, did your kids outgrow that? Great. <laughs> Give them to my kids sort of thing. Um, and so although some of my old friends and classmates from those elementary schools who didn't get to be homeschooled or who, who really didn't have the opportunity to have an alternative. Although some are doing really well for themselves, for themselves and every time I see them, I'm just like, huh, oh, this is awesome. Um, there are many, unfortunately, who are dead. They're in jail. They're abusing substances. They're so far away from living their life to the fullest and that didn't have to happen. So this snippet of my story is just one scenario of how black children are battling, have battled, and continue to battle a more vicious slew of obstacles in America on their pursuit to, life, to a lifetime of greatness. So the Egg Gap Evolution podcast exists in the same spirit that my mother harnessed when she pulled us out of school to homeschool us. It's the spirit of self-sufficiency, of celebrating the joys of education and opportunities for education even in everyday life the spirit of unconventional education and becoming resourceful about achieving your life's goals. Um, and so I hope that as you listen to or share an episode of the Egg Gap Evolution podcast with your friends, you know, when you share with your family or your network, that you keep in mind that each episode can benefit every child in so many ways, whether, um, you know, whether the episode opens up an adult's mind to a new way to educate children um, you know, to a new way to educate whether the episode, that same episode could uh, send parents directly to a paid resource for kids or a program for kids. For parents who cannot afford programs or resources, that same episode could be used. You know, the parent can listen and pull ideas from that episode that they can even try at home 
when they do have a spare moment's time. Um, or the episode could even help an entrepreneur or an inventor invent something great for children's enrichment um, to help children meet the future now and become the greatest versions of themselves. And so here we believe that the imagination and possibilities for a better and brighter future know no boundaries. And the world is changing in an unprecedented way, you know, unprecedented ways. We if you're listening right now, you were here during COVID and you thankfully survived. So you know that to be true. And since 2020, the U.S. showed a major gap between workers needed and workers hired, according to a recent ADP study. They roll out studies all the time. So if you ever need uh, really good stats on the workforce and what's going on, go to ADP's blog. And in April of 2020, as a country, we lost 20.8 million jobs in one month due to COVID shutdowns, making it the largest single month loss um, of jobs in history, guys, in history. Job descriptions are changing, guys. The types of thinkers and doers that employers and even the types of thinkers and doers that our global issues are requiring nowadays is much different than they were even seven years ago. And so it's up to us, mom, dad, caretaker, uncle, auntie, neighbor, teacher, trainer, citizen of the world. It's up to us to prepare our future, the children, for the future. Because if you don't have children of your own, even if you don't have children of your own, you will live in a world that they run. So what kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world do you want to help leave behind? Thank you for joining me. If you like what the podcast stands for and you want to get more people listening to the podcast, please turbo share this episode or any episode of the podcast with your family, your friends, and even with strangers. We don't care, y'all. Get it out to who you need to get it out to. And um, anyone can listen to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and we're on all major podcast platforms. I hope you all have a wonderful day wherever you are. And always remember, embrace the evolution, y'all.